0: Welcome to Create Photography, a podcast all about the creative side of photography. In today's episode, I will have a conversation with Daniel Milnor. Daniel Milnor is a journalist, photographer and writer who is now performing these duties in his role as creative evangelist for Blurb. He has a blog called Shifter Media and lives in New Mexico. Well, Daniel, let's, let's get started. Um, if you don't mind just telling me a little bit about yourself and your journey as a creative.
1: Wow, yeah. I mean, I guess technically it started back when I was in grade school. Um, and I think it was because I, I would definitely not call my father a creative. My father was a a businessman. Uh, very much so a businessman. My mother, on the other hand, was creative. My mom had a Pentax K1000 and, and bags of Kodachrome, and she was sort of the mm-hmm. family historian. So I was used to having the camera around. She photographed everything. In mm-hmm. fact, earlier today, I found an image of myself that I'm going to use in an upcoming film. I oh, cool. was probably in third grade or fourth grade. And uh, my mom also, I, I just dawned on me the other day that I'd sort of forgotten about it, but when I was very small. My mom had actually hand illustrated and wrote a a children's book about a a car, a little race car Hmm. that um, had a name and a face and a personality. And she would read it to me before I'd go, before I go to sleep at night. Hmm. And it was, and she wasn't the best writer and wasn't the best illustrator, but it was a really wonderful book that I, as a, as a little boy, that was a a huge part of my life was going to sleep at night, looking, knowing that she was going to read me this story. Hmm. And so, I started, the first thing I started doing creatively was write and writing was for me, short stories and, and jotting down overheard conversation with, uh, with adults around me. And I don't know exactly why I I did that, but I also started like ripping off Chuck Norris movies Mm -hmm. and stealing the plot from Chuck Norris movies (laughs) and writing little, little Mm -hmm. sort of pseudo copycat stories about, you know, violence and, martial arts and all that stuff. And then it wasn't, uh, I I had no intention of going into the creative field for a profession. I sort of, um, had had an accident that happened and steered me in the direction. And I was lucky because when I first really my first encounter with a camera, uh, put me into the professional space immediately within Mm. literally within a few days of picking up a camera, I was doing newspaper assignments And Hmm. I was, uh, Jerry Townsend at San Antonio college in Texas was the guy that saw a picture of mine in the cafeteria at lunchtime. I was showing a picture to a couple of my friends and, and he happened to be walking by and he was a journalism instructor and he leaned over and said, who, who made this photograph? And I thought I was in trouble and I was like, like, not me. And then, (laughs) and then I thought, oh, if I don't claim this, my friends are going to get in trouble. So I said, oh, you know, I'm, I took that. And he Hmm. said, uh, I'll give you a scholarship to be a photographer. Oh. And it, that was immediate. And then the I went into the school newspaper and uh, uh, Rudolph Gonzalez handed me a a, a screw mount NIKOR and a roll of film and said, here's your assignment. And <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know shutter speeds or apertures, or I didn't know how to work the camera. I didn't know anything. And I was suddenly doing assignments that were going to run in the paper the next day. So I had to learn how to process and print and on deadline. So it was kind of sink or swim and... I just was hooked immediately. I, I just said, this is what I want to do forever. And, um, and I'm, I'm still making pictures all these years later.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I learned a few very interesting things from your website called Shifter Media about you. <laughs> and um, I'd like to start with the website title itself, Shifter. Can, yeah. you, can you tell me what, what it means? And, you know, maybe to what it could mean to us and what it means to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, here's the funny thing is I I do a lot of cycling and mm-hmm. I think one of the things that kind of gets lost and one of the mis- lost in photography, one of the mistakes I made was I spent so many years of my adult life doing nothing but photography. That's mm-hmm. all I thought about. That's all I did when I traveled, when I was at home, all my friends, all my social engagements, everything was about photography. I was either going to gallery openings or going to parties where the other photographers were there, going to museums or going to lectures or shooting on my own time or shooting assignments. And I did that for like 27 years. And I had this life before photography. And there were a lot of things that I was doing at that time prior to photography that I still I realized all these years later, I still really like those things, including something like cycling. Mm-hmm. Now, you, would, you might think that Shifter has some correspondence to the cycling world. But right, right. me, I came up with Shifter because... Uh, this goes back, so Shifter's probably five or six years old, I think, roughly. And okay. I was working for Blurb, which, as I still am. And Blurb had approached me and said, how do you feel about doing a campaign for us about Blurb users that live creative lives? And can you photograph them and interview them? And I said to Blurb at the time, I said, I'm already doing that. And so that's what I do for fun is I reach out to blurb users who I think are living really creative lives. And I photograph them, interview them, and I put them on my site. Mm -hmm. So I did two of these shoots for blurb and I brought them to the director of marketing at the time. Who's no longer, who's since moved on to another company. And she looked at what I had done. and I'll never forget this. She goes, Oh, these, this is way better than I thought it was going (laughs) to be. We can't sort of willy nilly this. We have to build a campaign around what you're doing. And on one side, I was very I was flattered and I was excited mm-hmm. that they that they were excited. But on the other hand, I realized the kind of manpower required and the work required to build a campaign, and I thought that's probably not gonna happen. And in the interim, someone else at Blurb, a, a higher up person, came to me and said, You know, if I was you, I would consider building your own site to house these stories because if it takes us a long time to get our campaign together then at least you'll have them online and people will be able to like utilize it in the interim and so i suddenly i was faced with having to build a new site and i was actually talking to uh, a friend of mine who who was one of my partners in crime at blurb for years he's a really talented photographer bookmaker out of san francisco named kent hall mm-hmm. and Kent and I, I was like, I gotta come up with a name. And so I just made a list and list and list and word site after site after site, and I was bouncing them off of Kent. And Shifter was like, we both kind of looked at each other <laughs> and I was like, I think I really like this. And then when it came time to the com, org, dot whatever media was available. And I was like, Hmm. I really like this because my life is going to change. It is going to shift. I'm going to be a lot more diverse than I've been over the last three decades. And I don't honestly know where I'm going and I don't know where this site's going to be. And so the shifter part made sense. And then the media part made sense because I envisioned having a film channel, having, having a written channel, having an audio channel. And I thought, you know, media is a, is a smart, um, domain for what right. i'm about to do and it's, mm-hmm. g- it's going to continue to evolve i I had the other day I had, a, I had an idea of just completely redoing the whole site again just for fun but mm-hmm. luckily i don't have time
0: <laughs> yeah and so so when you so you worked as a documentary and professional photographer for a long long time and so so that tra- that transition to now working for blur has been i mean relatively recent but not super recent correct i mean you mentioned mentioned that but how was that transition or how did how did that happen
1: you know it's actually in the in the tech world it's actually been a lifetime so this goes way way back so um i started making my own books with the help of many other friends and and industry people back in the early 90s and i realized immediately number one i loved doing it. But number two, it was very strategic. It immediately put me in a category that no one else was in. And I, I was telling somebody a few days ago, I, my original books that I sent out, I got handwritten letters from places like the National Geographic who wrote me and said, we've never seen a portfolio like this. How did, how did you do this? Mm-hmm. So I was in love with bookmaking. Mm-hmm. and. When blurb first arrived, my wife who worked in the industry for a long time in the photo industry, she was in New York and stumbled across blurb at a trade show and picked up one of their flyers. And she brought that home from me. And I think it was 2006. And so I just immediately made a sample book. You know, that to me is anytime there's a new company or a company of interest, I just immediately make something doesn't have to be anything big or special. I just test the platform. And so I got this mm-hmm. book in the mail and I was like, wow, this is really interesting And what hooked me was the fact that Blurb had a bookstore built onto the back end. And at the time I was making books for clients, but then I was having to be shipping and receiving and it was Mm -hmm. just a pain. And I was living in Los Angeles and going to the post office in Los Angeles was not fun. It was like, Mm -hmm. you know, imagine (laughs) bulletproof glass and (laughs) you know, scary locations. And I was like, okay, this is no this I'm I'm getting tired of this. I was almost at the point where I thought about stopping making books for clients because I just didn't want to do the back end. So blurb comes mm-hmm. along, they have this bookstore and I was like, Oh, this is going to be great. I don't have to do this anymore. So I'd made like three sample books with blurb. I had made one wedding book, one documentary book, and one portrait book and like a promotional piece for my portraiture.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And my phone rang and it was the founder of blurb. Her name is Eileen Gittens. And Eileen was like, who are you? <laughs> and we talked for a while and she goes, wow, your books look really different. And I said, oh, you know, thanks. I'm just testing things out. I'm using these other companies. And we talked about the other companies. And Eileen then said something that basically changed my life. She said, what do you want? And of all the other companies I was using, no one had ever asked me that question. Hmm. And so I was a bit rude, to be honest. I said, are you being polite or do you actually want to know? And she said, no, I really want to know. And I said, I want to make small run art books outside of mainstream publishing because mm-hmm. the projects I'm doing are not economically viable for a publisher. And frankly, my, I, the, the publishing cycle and what you have to do to go through a publishing cycle with a publisher is not of interest to me. Mm -hmm. And I want to just be exist on my own. And she said, do you think a lot of other people want to do that? And I said, I know a lot of other people want to do that. And so she said, what do you, what do you think about being on the blurbs advisory board? And I remember thinking to myself, when I heard the term advisory board, I thought about my father in the, in the business world and like Mm -hmm. men in suits with, you know, cigarettes and ashtrays and (laughs) and martini lunches. And I was like, I don't think I'm advisory board material. And she said, Mm -hmm. no. It's not that kind of advisory board. It's basically, you know, you test the, you're, we basically get feedback and you test the platform and you know, this or that, but very quickly what happened was she flew me to San Francisco and I went into the blurb office and I have never had an office job in my life ever. And I walked into this office and I was like, wow, um, if I was going to work for a company in an office this is who I would want to work for because Mm -hmm. these people are really cool and they're really smart and they're driven and I was hooked. And so uh one of their marketing people said to me, Hey, have you ever done any public speaking? And I said, Yeah, I've actually done a fair amount and I actually Mm -hmm. really enjoy public speaking. Mm -hmm. And so she said, What do you think about coming to New York and and giving a talk? And I did, and that just immediately started the ball rolling. And so I, I continued as a photographer for a few more years. But in 2010 I said, I don't want to be a photographer anymore. And about Mm -hmm. two weeks after I sort of publicly made it known that I was not going to work as a photographer anymore, Eileen reached out again and said, what do you think about working for us? And that's, that's, I never looked back. It's been the, by far the best job I've ever had.
0: Oh, very cool. Another thing that kind of um, stood out to me from your website, you, you mentioned you recently started learning playing the guitar. (laughs) Are you still, are you still doing this?
1: Okay. So ironically, uh, where I live in Santa Fe, Mm -hmm. when I moved into the house that I'm, I have a little house here that we, we own a little house here in Santa Fe, but it's rented. So Mm -hmm. when we left California at the beginning of this year and came to Santa Fe, we ended up renting a house outside of the city and which is beautiful and we love it. And we lucked out, but we, we went into lockdown before we could have internet installed. Mm. So I am sitting in my van as we do this recording (laughs) In front of my friend's house and my mm-hmm. friend is the one who is teaching me guitar, but the story is kind of funny. <laughs> what I discovered is, so when my, <clears throat> I have an older brother and an older sister
2: mm-hmm.
1: and when, and my brother's the oldest. And when my brother was little, my parents went to him and said, you have a choice. You can play guitar or you can play drums. And my brother mm-hmm. chose guitar.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He still plays guitar. He's now playing in front of audiences and music is a huge part of my brother's life. My sister at the same age was given the choice of guitar or piano. And because my brother played guitar, she said, I don't want to play guitar. I'm going to play piano. Mm -hmm. So me, I'm born in 69. My mom's (laughs) a little bit of a hippie. Um, When it comes to my time, she says, you can either play piano or take ballet. (laughs) Now, I was a little, I was a kid living in rural Indiana and the the thought of taking ballet and going Mm -hmm. to school and having my friends find out that I was in ballet (laughs) was mortifying. Mm -hmm. So I chose piano and because my sister was there and I couldn't stand it. And the day that I was given the opportunity to quit or continue, I quit. Mm -hmm. So we moved to Santa Fe. I meet someone out here named David Goldberg, who's a friend whose house I'm sitting in front of. And David is an incredible guitar player. And what I found about guitar players is that they assume that you can play guitar and they're so excited (laughs) to share their instrument with you that they mm-hmm. just assume that you can play. So David kept badgering me. We should play guitar. We should play guitar. And I finally said to him, I said, David, I've never touched a guitar in my life. I don't know how to play. <laughs> so a couple, about two years ago, middle of winter, freezing cold, I go over to David's house. I open the front door and he's standing in the living room with his, with his feet apart and his hands on his hips like a, like a county sheriff. And he says, shut up and go sit on the sofa. And I walk over to the sofa and he puts a guitar in my hands and he says, do exactly what I tell you to do. And he basically (laughs) taught me the ACG chord progression. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to teach you these chords in a strumming pattern and you're going to play a song. And I did. And it just, it just immediately stuck. And David said to me, look, if you had chosen guitar at the same time that you chose cameras, you'd be a really good guitar player. You know, you mm-hmm. have, there's something you have, you have sort of an innate ability to play this. The problem I have, and so the the short answer to your question is, yes, I'm still doing it. Mm-hmm. The, the, the unfortunate answer is that I'm so busy with work and other things that it's sort of the, it feels like it's the one creative thing that's just off of, out of reach for me mm-hmm. right now.
2: Mm-hmm. My
1: guitar's in my bedroom. I walk past it every day. I look <laughs> down at it. And I go, I have to play, I have to play. And I'd love to play with my brother, which I've never done. I've never been able to play guitar with my brother ever. Oh, yeah. I know that it would be fun.
0: That would be fun. Yeah, my actually, my, my brother is a drummer, so we're both musicians, but um, so we, he's now in Switzerland, so unfortunately we don't get to play together much anymore. But I, it would be fun for you, know, you to play with your brother, I'm sure.
1: The, the other thing too is I got Lyme disease in 2014, and it, mm-hmm. it really wiped me out for about five years. It was mm. it was sort of a shadow for five years. It was my daily... I always tell people if I was awake, it was the number one thing in my mind for five years. And so and physically, I was not right. And cognitively, I was not right. But what I learned about the guitar, and I didn't understand it when it first happened, was the guitar provided a respite from Lyme because I couldn't think of anything else.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so... I, I've since learned and read about neuroscience and music and mm-hmm. it's the most complete exercise of the human brain they have ever discovered is learning and playing, reading and playing music.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so for me, it was like, even though I couldn't really play, um, you know, I would, I would find these little bass tracks online to provide a little beat in the background. And then I would mm-hmm. just fumble through my chord, pre- chord progressions, but mm-hmm. it took my mind off of the fact that I wasn't right. And When you're sick, anyone who's, who hasn't had a chronic illness, it's very difficult to understand Mm -hmm. how bad it is because especially with Lyme, because it's not like you're in, you're in an auto accident where someone can see physical damage. Mm -hmm. They look at you and they say, you look fine, but inside, not only physically, but cognitively, you're not. And after Mm -hmm. year, after year, after year, it's a very difficult scenario. So at some point in my life, the guitar will become more than it is now.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, but you raise you raise a great point with the guitar playing an instrument that gets you, can get you in, into the zone where you're really forgetting about. It's almost like meditation, right? You're forgetting yeah. about everything else, and you're just focusing on that that one thing which can happen in photography i suppose
1: <laughs> yeah but. and i think in david the person teaching me guitar he's also he also meditates and he spent mm-hmm. 10 years in india and he's he's been all over the place but mm-hmm. um you know meditation was something too that i i've learned I, he didn't teach me how to meditate but we've spoken about it many many times and he's a pretty pretty routine meditator mm-hmm. and um and then also other friends since that time have really started to meditate a lot and i think you're exactly right I think music, for certain people, works in ex- almost identical way. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I could use both. I could I mm-hmm. certainly <laughs> use meditation. Right. And, uh, yeah, I'll take any, any of the help I can get.
0: <laughs> right, same here. <laughs> um, so, you have previously mentioned that you are, it's another thing from your website, so um, that you are disappointed in American architecture <laughs> and wow. also how cell phones have transformed us into zombies both of which i tend to agree with so i'd love let's talk about the architecture first <laughs> yeah
1: so i mean i live in new mexico which has a very specific architecture mm-hmm. and it also has a very specific lack of other kinds of architecture which is we're very thankful for that mm-hmm. uh, but i always equated. i spend a lot of time physically on the road in the van and you're driving around and i lived for 25 years in southern california which is the strip mall capital of the world and uh, you know in california they would take these amazing buildings from the 70s and someone a developer would buy it tear it down and they built a strip mall with a terracotta roof and you know horrible uh <laughs> basically frame architecture with stucco right it's poorly insulated that 10 years later has to be rebuilt that you have to air condition in the summer and heat in the winter. And it's just really poorly done. And I I always think to myself, and it's ironic that you're from Switzerland, because (laughs) when I'm on the road, I always filter, and I don't know why exactly, because it's a torture, but I filter the American experience experience through the mindset of someone from another country. Mm -hmm. And I always feel a little bit sorry for Europeans, because (laughs) having been to Europe so many times and looking at the things like the quality of food. The quality of coffee, the quality of architecture, the history. And I think to myself, like when I'm on an interstate somewhere at a gas station or a truck stop and it's fast food and just horrible architecture and poor quality (laughs) building. And I think, God, what do the Europeans think of this? (laughs) And I get the landscape here is remarkable, but I kind of American arch and it's not to say that there isn't incredible American architecture, there is. You know, even within walking distance of my house in New Mexico, there are incredible properties and not just, you know, old colonial or not colonial, but, you know, old new Mexican style, Adobe structures or Spanish, Spanish houses here, but you also have incredibly, uh, amazing modern architecture here as well. So you've mm-hmm. got a little bit of everything, but the, I, I kind of see, like, if you drive the I-10 freeway and you drive from Los Angeles to Phoenix, about 80 miles West of Phoenix, you see track home neighborhoods with no public transportation, and mm-hmm. the only way from those neighborhoods into phoenix is the i10 which is already overloaded with traffic and you mm-hmm. look at the quality of architecture and you go okay those are poorly constructed they have to be rebuilt you have to air condition you have to heat mm-hmm. and you think to yourself we have to do better we cannot continue to do this but yet right. here we are <laughs> and so and i think the yep. phone in terms of the the technology of the phone i mean this is something I, I I think about every single day. Um, I think yesterday here in the United States with what happened um, with the sort of invasion mm-hmm. of, our, of our political center. Right. Um, a, a huge part of that is is literally atomized disinformation campaigns that are for profit by big tech. And so we have big tech who's figured out how to weaponize this dis- disinformation for profit. And there's a lot of people spending all day long on their phones. and. The internet brought us sort of a, a level of, of um, misinformation content that was beyond anything the world had ever s- saw coming. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: whatever, whatever belief you have, you can find a community of people who are going to back you up and, and support you on that same belief, no matter how misguided. And so mm-hmm. the phone is just this perfect delivery mechanism for this stuff. And obviously there's an upside to it. It's pretty amazing to have a phone in your pocket. Right. Um, it's pretty fantastic to have a GPS unit in your pocket, especially for me. My, my phone is my primary navigation device on my bicycle. So when I'm out in the right. middle of oh, nowhere yeah. riding, mm-hmm. and I've got this full-time perfect map in front of me. That's pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. But it's the sort of secondary layer of what we're now using those phones to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tracking and all that stuff. I'm actually kind of I'm not one of these people who just complains about it or thinks about it in conspiracy ways. I'm fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm absolutely mesmerized by the idea that things like Facebook still exist and mm-hmm. that <laughs> places like Cambridge Analytica, even after we kn- we mm-hmm. know what happened in 2016, we're right. still doing the same stuff. And that to me mm-hmm. is fascinating. It's a study of human psychology, also, also human vulnerability and how, and mm-hmm. how it's being exploited. And we, we all have weaknesses. And one of the best decisions I ever made was about seven years ago. I just deleted all of them. I deleted Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest. Um, I can't remember the other ones at the time, but there were mm-hmm. other, I think I deleted seven networks mm-hmm. and everyone said, um, Oh, you can't <laughs> do that. Or you'll be back or, or hurt, mm-hmm. um, you know, in your job, you have to do that. And I was like, mm-hmm. no, I don't think, <laughs> so. I don't think mm-hmm. I have to do anything. And I'm certainly after about, I, I physically detoxed for a couple of weeks
2: mm-hmm. and that
1: was kind of freaky for me. I, I was like, wow, I'm the, the second I have a minute of downtime in my brain. So mm-hmm. let's say that you're, you're switching between tasks. You're going from email to getting ready to sign into a conference call and you have that millisecond of downtime. My brain was going, go to Facebook, go Mm -hmm. to Instagram, go to Facebook, go to Instagram. And I was like, Oh my God, I feel like I'm physically Mm -hmm. addicted. And this was before I really had done any kind of research on the fact that these things are physically addictive. And I was kind of having this conversation with myself, like, wow, I feel like this is really bad. And then Mm -hmm. (laughs) after about two weeks, I felt like I was like surfing and you're, you're, you're going down the shoulder of the wave and you sort of come out the, come out the end of the wave. That's what it felt like two weeks later. And I kind of looked back. And I thought, wow, my life is a lot better now. <laughs> and uh, and over the years, you know, Blurb has said, can you engage on this channel or that channel? And I don't want to be a jerk about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, like, they they got me back on Instagram for a very short period of time. And when no one was looking, I deleted it again. <laughs> and I never got rid of my Twitter account because back when I deleted like seven years ago, there was no Instagram, and so Twitter was the the deal. And mm-hmm. so. They said, will you keep your Twitter account? And I was like, sure, no problem. But Mm. it's so hard for me to look at it now, like especially Mm -hmm. after what happened yesterday because it's not, you know, every single photographer seems to be like, you know, spouting some sort of political ideology of one one way or another. And I just (laughs) don't have time for it. I just, I don't Mm -hmm. want to do that. So Mm -hmm. I'd much rather read a book.
0: Right, right.
1: Or play guitar.
0: Or play guitar. And so... You know, just a follow-up question on social media and just kind of for, let's just, for young photographers or young creatives, it it does seem like, you know, platforms like Instagram and others are the ones that are primarily being used by, you know, I'll say by that generation. Um, And, but at the same time, you know, all the things that you mentioned, I, I tend to agree with. I mean, it can hinder our creativity. It can... Yeah, it, it can distract us from, you know, going out and photographing or being creative and so forth, but but so how should should we or those people go 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 about um dealing with that? I mean is, is it best to just delete the social media and and just, you know, not worry about it or
1: Well, I think I think deleting social media has an almost immediate impact on who you are as a human being. I think it makes you a better human being to get away from those networks. Hmm. So as a young photographer, what you have to understand is the social networks, Instagram in particular, that is not about great photography. They're not about the actual work. What they are is about the following, the numbers of the following. That is what is powerful on Instagram. Because and, and and building a following and being a great photographer are two completely unrelated things. That mm. one of in fact one of the best photographers I've ever known in my life has eighty thousand Instagram followers, and I know someone who has never made a single decent photograph in his life that has a half a million followers on Instagram. Mm. Because the one who's got a half a million knows how to make a palatable sort of phony version of himself that's palatable Mm -hmm. to the masses. And so he's bringing in these massive numbers of people who just don't know any better. They think that this is a professional photographer. Mm -hmm. Whereas the the pro who has 80,000, he's working all day long, every day, he's shooting some of the most important jobs that are happening in the world today. And he has for decades, he's got probably six or seven books to his name he's got museum shows gallery shows he's doing every kind of photography professional photography assignment you can imagine and he is a mad scientist the guy is a very Mm -hmm. intelligent dude that can do way more than photography and so those two things are very very different and unrelated and so i think a lot of people get wrapped up in this idea that you know wow great photography on instagram it's, it's not. And the other thing too is Instagram is about conformity and it's about conforming to an algorithm that is owned by a massive tech conglomerate. It's owned by Mark Zuckerberg. So mm-hmm. everything that you're doing is based on someone else's algorithm. And mm-hmm. every time they change the algorithm, you have to change. It's going, the algorithm is like a white shark. Mm-hmm. The white shark spends half its life swimming around looking for food and the other half eating food. And the algorithm is going to demand more and more and more. And then at some point, it's all going away because Instagram will go or Facebook will go. Mm -hmm. And then where are you? So for me, and, and the other interesting thing that you will see when you hang around the professional industry, and this is really sad in my book because it shouldn't be this way. The photo industry, the photography world in general, the creative industries, whether it's design or illustration or whatever, street art, art. We're supposed to be creative and you go to industry events and you hear whether it's art buyers or agents or art directors or whatever telling the entire audience of photographers, you all have to do X. <laughs> and I sit in that audience and I think to myself, you got to be kidding me. How, ra- <laughs> how lazy is it to tell every single person you have to be on Instagram, you have to be on
2: Instagram. Mm -hmm. And
1: the reason they're doing that is when they're in their production meetings, they don't want to go to websites anymore. Everybody's convinced themselves they don't have time to do that. Mm. So they sit in production meetings with two phones, flipping through Instagram accounts, looking for people with following, thinking Mm. that they can turn those followers into followers of different brands. I mean, that's how the whole game works now. Mm -hmm. Everyone's looking for influencers and looking for influencers. And it's just, if you look at the overall health of the creative industry, I just have one question. You think this is working? <laughs> you know, are, are the industries healthy? Is photography mm-hmm. healthier than it was 10 years ago? Or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how is it looking? Frankly, I don't think so. I don't think it is. And that mm-hmm. sucked because all my friends are photographers and I, I would much prefer to have happy photographer friends as opposed to stressed out photographer friends or people mm-hmm. who are having to live lives online that are not truthful. Right. Because I I'll I'll give you an example. In 2002, I started blogging and I had gone to a creative conference and I I met a 15 year old kid who's a web designer who was absolutely incredible. He was 15 and he was was already booked full time as a web Mm. designer. And the guy at the conference who sat next to me was, I think he was the guy who invented blogger that platform. Mm. And so we're sitting there talking and he's doing these really beautiful sketches, illustrations in his notebook. And, um, he saw me writing in a notebook. And the conference was the first time I ever heard the word blog. And Mm -hmm. I was like, and I turned to this guy, ironically, the guy who invented blogger, I didn't know it was him. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey man, what's a blog? (laughs) (laughs) And he goes, goes, well, what you're doing in your journal, with your paper journal that you have right there, he goes, it's the same thing, but it's online. Mm
0: -hmm. And so I was like,
1: wow. And I went home and I signed, (laughs) I got a blogger account and I started blogging. And one of the first pieces I wrote was about going on an assignment and sort of blowing it. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't have a good shoot and I was like, I don't know what happened, something wrong. And I remember the first thing that happened is photographers started reaching out to me saying, you cannot do that. You can't say that. You can't admit that you did something wrong. And I was like, wow, because they were so petrified. They were already trying to make it, you know, I live, uh, rainbows and unicorns, rainbows and unicorns. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's not, that's not how the world works and my clients aren't aren't stupid they know that i'm not 100 percent all the time they know that i'm not going to hit a home run every time i'm at the plate um you know i might hit a triple or a double or even just a single but those pictures might still work so mm-hmm. there's you know i think honesty online is in is in short supply
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and it's um i don't know it's fun when i you don't have to you know i don't work as a photographer anymore so
2: mm-hmm.
1: i don't have to pretend to anybody and blurb has put up with me for so long you know (laughs) they um they know that i'm i guess a little unpredictable and that i'm Mm -hmm. honest when i talk about this stuff you know right
0: right right and so daniel you're you're an avid believer in the printed media um and you know with all the mobile devices social media and so forth are you concerned that you know future generations will lose touch to printed media as we as we used to know them and use them?
1: You know, I think eventually, it's pro- probably will happen. But I think that eventually keeps being moved back. Okay. Because if you remember 10 years ago, everybody told us the printed books were going away. Mm. You know, Kindle <laughs> comes out, or 15 years ago, whenever the Kindle came out, everyone's like, right. that's it, that's it, it's over. And it's not right. true, and the printed, printed book numbers are up. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I have never seen as much fervor around the photo book community as I do today.
2: Mm -hmm. There
1: are so many, I just got Doug Stockdale's email photo book. You know, he's a guy that writes about photo books out of LA. There's the photo book club out of the UK. Um, you know, Andy Adams with flack online. He's always doing photo book stuff. Blurb is doing, there's a hundred companies out there. Artifact. Um, there's, there's, there's print on demand and self pub companies all over the world. You also have all the traditional photographic publishers. I mean, Santa Fe has, has Twin Palms and Radius, which are two of the best photo book publishers in the world. You have Photo mm-hmm. Eye Bookstore here, which is arguably one of the best illustrated bookstores in the world. Uh, there is no shortage of people who are in love with print. And print is just a different, obviously a different experience. I have a Kindle when I, for when I travel on the road. Mm-hmm. But I, I have a stack of, of physical books at home that I get from the library. The library is a free education. It's endless. I'm there all the time. And, um, I don't see that changing in the, in the short term. Um, I don't know what developments are going to be 10, 20, 30 years from now where, you know, I mean, remember as a kid, Daniel, I don't know how old you are, but, (laughs) you know, as a kid watching the Jetsons, the cartoon, um, you know, everyone's like, we're all going to have food in pill form and we're going to travel and time locks, you know, Mm -hmm. and then, okay, here we are in 2021 and we're nowhere remotely close to that. So Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we, we want to jump the gun and I really hope that, that printed books don't go away because it's just such a different experience and the, the requirements to create one are, are considerable Mm -hmm. and I think that's why they're so good is you have to really want it and, and I think. the the cost and the expense is one of the reasons why they're so good. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's almost like, it's like in some ways analog photography, when you hear digital people talking about analog and talking about how antiquated it is and you can't see the photograph and you only have a certain amount of images. And as a film photographer, you go, Hey, that's why I like it. Mm -hmm. I can't see the photos and I only have a limited amount. So I have to think differently. So, you know, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I Mm -hmm. think, I think print and tangible objects have had a relationship with humans since the beginning. And even 30 years from now, if we've we've had some revolutionary development in the digital book world, I still think you're going to have kids manufacturing paper books by hand. Mm -hmm. That's my guess.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think I think so, and I hope so too. <laughs> that would be wonderful. So, for let's let's assume for I'm taking the example of younger photographers or, or photographers who are who are serious or or they may be professionals or semi professionals, but they want to get more into printing. So, I want to discuss what are some of the ways to to get into printing you know and i'm not just talking about printing out one photograph but maybe more you know a little project or something i want to mm-hmm. maybe discuss that and get, get some of your thoughts on that
1: yeah i mean the good my advice is really to start small okay start inexpensive and make test after test after test so for example if you live in in the united states Uh, especially if you live in, if you're an urban dweller, chances are you're relatively close to a place like Kinko's, a chain like Kinko's, and -hmm. you can take your images into a Kinko's and print it out on copy paper and fold those pages over and staple them together. And you've got yourself a zine and zines have been around since the 1930s. There's tens of thousands of these things printed every year in the United States. And then when you throw in the global market, it's massive. Mm-hmm. And zines are informal sort of underground magazines. They're not fancy. They're not expensive. They don't need to be. And they're an incredible way to access the print world. Um, I have a 10-year-old inkjet printer in my house that's no longer even, it's a printer scanner. It was mm-hmm. never good to begin with. It's no longer supported as a scanner. So now it only works as <laughs> the printer. And the prints are horrible. And I make prints on it all the time. I have right next to it, A whatever a canon pro 1000 printer that prints up to i think 17 by 22 Hmm. that's probably i don't know what that thing costs maybe three grand i've Hmm. never made a single print with it (laughs) because i just bang out prints on the on the crappy printer Mm -hmm. and i staple them in my journal Um, you don't need to make exhibition quality prints you're not printing necessarily for a gallery you're not printing for a wall you don't have to print huge Um, Hannah Mula makes a beautiful postcard paper that comes in a Mm. metal tin. Um, Mm. Sending postcards is actually one of the most entertaining and also strategic things you can possibly do. Number one, Mm -hmm. you can send your parents a postcard or your sister or your brother (laughs) or your cousin or some family member or a friend you Mm -hmm. met somewhere in Latin America and 20 years ago, you can send them a postcard. Mm-hmm. But you you can also send prospective clients a postcard. right? And I don't care what anyone says. Everybody loves getting a postcard. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really cool. That's, I get postcards all cool. the time from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And my wife just comes in and drops a big stack of them on my desk. and And people are creating artwork on these. People are doing illustrations. They're painting on them. They're writing on them. They're putting photographs on them. So I would start small.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And don't spend a lot of money and just start to experiment. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think the online world has pressured young photographers into believing that everything they do, every move they make, is for public consumption. Mm-hmm. And I am so glad I came around before this happened because it's unfair to them to mm-hmm. to have that kind of pressure with a fickle public riding over the top of them, and the idea of just creating for the sake of creating and enjoying the process and realizing that 99% of what you make is not going to work and being totally fine with that because you're not showing it to anyone. That is a, it's a luxury. Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: I make little prints all the time. I I made a couple of today that I glued into my journal that no Mm -hmm. one's going to see, but I Mm -hmm. looked at it and I was like, wow, this is really fun. I enjoy Mm -hmm. this. It's not expensive. It's not time consuming. Um, and then having said that, I have a new book project that I'm going to start working on um, that is more serious, that will take more time, that I have to spend more attention to detail. The materials are going to be more expensive. The photography has to be better.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so I like jumping out of sort of formal and informal printing projects. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing to do is to um, is to reach out to your colleagues, reach out to your friends and say, let's do a project together. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one massive collaboration project happening right now and i'm always looking for collaboration projects so Hmm. uh yeah i think that's that's the best thing to do start small start inexpensive and and experiment
0: Mm -hmm. and so let's assume you know that photographer he or she now they have maybe started to do some small scene they've done you know they print their work the smaller things and so forth but maybe they they collected a larger body of work that they want to do something a little bit more serious as you just mentioned maybe with blurb (laughs) Mm -hmm. but but they don't have really good ideas about you know design layout sequencing you know the, the basic they understand maybe how to edit their images but they don't understand how to maybe edit you know the book so what where should they go? <laughs> Other than, of course, they could go to YouTube, I suppose. But what what, what do you suggest?
1: Uh, a couple of things. So okay. to your point, bookmaking is, if you have bookmaking as an umbrella skill, underneath that, you would have categories or chapters about actually, number one would be making the photographs. Number mm-hmm. two would be editing. Three would be sequencing Four would be typography, five would be page design, six would be choosing trim size and materials, seven would be refining, and eight would be publishing, marketing, and distributing.
2: Mm-hmm. That,
1: it's just rough off the top of my head, that's what right. I would say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Each one of those subsets is a, is a separate language. Mm-hmm. So when I started in photography, we had full-time picture editors. That's all they did was edit pictures and they were really, really good. And that mm-hmm. was in newspapers and magazines and agencies. And they're still around, but they're not, they're not around in the same quantity. Mm-hmm. We had people who were book editors in particular, who were masters at not only editing, but sequencing and creating that story arc with the photographs. And then we had full-time, we still do we have full-time book designers, page designers, graphic designers and we have people who are typography specialists. And so all of these are subskills that require experience, education and practice. And so mm-hmm. what what I see happening most of the time with young bookmakers in particular is again because everything they're putting out in the world is being judged by a, a fickle public who probably overall doesn't have any skill in these areas either but they're very quick to make judgments. And so mm-hmm. it begins to sort of suck the fun out of the process. Right. And when, <laughs> Instead of saying, as a young photographer, instead of saying, I need to make something perfect because I'm going to put this out and everyone's going to judge me, you have to do tests. You've got Mm -hmm. to do testing and you make something small and simple and you basically are are putting it out, not uh, sharing it with the world. And so for Mm -hmm. example, Blurb makes a format called trade books and trade books are incredibly affordable and they're beautiful. And I make, probably I make 10 trade books for every photo book I make just because Hmm. I'm always doing little sketches and tests and, and trying different things. The big collaboration project I have going on right now, that's a blurb trade book. Hmm. So I can make something for literally a couple of dollars. You can make a trade Hmm. book for less than three bucks. Wow! You'll pay more for shipping than you will for the trade book. And so (laughs) I, I am constantly tinkering and trying things. And also uh, my background is 100% in photography. I had no mm-hmm. paint design, no typography knowledge, nothing. I had to learn from scratch and I'm still learning. And I'm frankly, mm-hmm. not very good. <laughs> um, the collaboration project, thankfully, we had the budget to hire um, Zoe Satakirsky out of Sydney, who's who's a f- one of the best book designers I've ever met. Mm. And also just an, an all around super cool person. Um, and so what Zoe does with the work that I send is so far beyond my capability, I can't even get my head around it. I, I mean, I, mm. when I send things to her, all I know is it will be transformative when it comes back and mm. will be so far beyond. So as a young creative, there's, there's, there's no expectation that you would be good in all of these different categories. So it, it takes right. practice. And also when you realize, like for me, I don't have time to become a great page designer. So mm-hmm. I either have to partner with someone and pay them Or I have to live with the fact that my designs are probably not going to be that great. Um, But what I am potentially good at is making the photographs. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a friend of mine, a designer that I've known forever said to me when I first started making books, he said, look, don't over design it. If your work Mm -hmm. is good, let it breathe because it will live on its own. Just refine your design to the point where it's not a distraction from the overall, from the content, from the work, the photographs but Mm -hmm. just get out of get out of the way and so that's it is i would i would um again making tests uh everything good in the creative world comes from refinement it comes Mm -hmm. from you know revision and uh, novelists going version after version after version getting you know honing it and cutting it Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and sharpening it and um you know that's part of the that's part of the process that's a lot of fun
0: Mm -hmm. what are some of the resources photographers or other visual creatives could go to to learn more about you know the the skills you just mentioned that are not you know their main skill like being a photographer or painter or whatever and you know and kind of getting a little bit more into that if they you know typically they probably want to start trying it themselves what what would you where would you point them to
1: (laughs) you know that's a really good question obviously there's a ton of stuff online about how to do photography um Mm -hmm. some some of it is great a lot of it is like a mystery to me Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, the subsets there's a little bit of stuff about editing photographs but something like sequencing of photographs there's very little Mm -hmm. information out there about it because i get people asking all the time how do you do this Mm-hmm. And I've looked around a little bit and there's not a whole lot of stuff out there. The same for, well, there's more about typography. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate to do a trip a few years ago for blurb where it was, it was three of us on the trip. It was Jerry Covassier, who basically is a Lightroom expert. And Jerry was, t- would, we would all talk to the same crowd. We would do a lecture series. We went, we went from San Francisco to Chicago, New York, and London. And Jerry would kick things off by talking about digital asset management, where you put your photographs, how you label them, how you retrieve them, how you process them. I would get up and I would talk about blurb. And we had a third person on the trip who is a book designer out of San Francisco. Who's awesome. His name is Bob awful And I didn't know Bob that well before the trip started. And the first time Bob gave his talk, I was absolutely floored. I just sat there looking at this and I thought, I don't know any of this. (laughs) I I literally know nothing about what he's talking about. And over the course of that trip, I watched his presentation seven times (laughs) and we were in London walking down the street and Bob looked up and I saw him look at something and kind of shake his head and keep walking. And I said, what was that? What did you see that made you shake your head? And he said, he looked at, at a restaurant that had opened and it said, this restaurant has been open since what year? And the, type, the typeface they used on their sign um, came before that. And he knew that. And he said, that doesn't make sense. That typeface came before that restaurant opened and they should have used some, along, something along those lines. He had made some connection between the opening of the restaurant and the year the typeface had arrived. And I was like,
2: hmm.
1: There's typography it alone is a rabbit hole that I have <laughs> no concept of how far down this goes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, th- again, where do you find information on typography? You can Google and start there. You can also look at really amazing design organizations. You know, Design Observer is a good resource mm-hmm. where people can look and you can find individual designers. Um, the Art Directors Club mm-hmm. out of New York is another amazing club that has chapters all over the world and they're doing world-class design. And through those world-class design firms you can find individual designers and then study each of those designers and the other thing you can do is you can look at illustrated books i mean a place like Photoeye here in town has thousands of the best photographic books in the world Mm -hmm. and they're right there and uh, photo eye is a good website and you can just start looking and watching what people are doing with typography for example bob the designer I just mentioned, he had done a couple of books with a photographer who I think at the time was out of Los Angeles. Hmm. I think, I'm pretty sure Bob did a book called Oblivion with um, David Mazel, which hmm. is a book about Los Angeles. He did another book called Library of Dust. God, I hope I get this name right. I, th- I think Bob is the designer who did that. Okay. And there, there were some interesting, Library of Dust in particular had some aspects of the typography that was one of the first books I looked at and said, wow, I do not understand typography. (laughs) I'm not typography is not an afterthought. It -hmm. is an equal player on the field with the Mm -hmm. photographs and the design and the borders and the type hierarchy and all of that stuff. And I was like, okay, (laughs) I need to start educating myself. Um, and hopefully Bob is actually the designer of those books. If I, if I got it messed up, Mm -hmm. um, that's also a potential, I've I've run into so in the last 10 years I have seen so many photography books I cannot even count.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So, now getting a little technical, but I'm curious about that, you know, sometimes um when we're printing our work, especially color work, but probably true for black and white to some extent, but let, let's talk about color. You know, the there's the whole issue around color profiles on the cameras and then in our software and our computers and, you know, also the whole issue around possibly calibrating our monitors. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, it's so funny you asked me that because <laughs> the YouTube film I just uploaded, which I'm going, going to release tomorrow, oh, it's, called, okay. it's called Just Make One. Okay. And it's talking about the beauty of print on demand and the fact that you can make an individual book, that not every book has to be a huge public thing and expensive and take up all your time. You can just make one and you can play and have fun and do silly books. And I show a bunch of these that I've done. And and one of the things I talk about is color management and how to me, color management is one of the most boring topics I have <laughs> ever, ever heard in my entire life. Right. and. My, my experience with color management goes back to the late nineties. I got a job with Kodak professional and, uh, they did really didn't want to hire me, but one guy threw a fit and really wanted to hire me and his, his argument won out. So I got this job at Kodak. And one of the first things I had to do was I had to drive to Los Angeles and at sunset Boulevard and go to the basement of this hotel for a week long color management seminar. And five minutes into the first day. I wanted to quit because <laughs> it was the most agonizing, horrific waste of time in my entire life. And I still think to this day, color management is far too complicated for the average person. And mm-hmm. for the for the prosumer photographer in particular, who seems to be absolutely and utterly mesmerized by this topic,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's not as important as people make it.
2: Right.
1: Yes, having good color is important. But what is far more important is a set of good photographs, a, mm-hmm. a good story arc, a good story, a good a set, a section of copy to go with it. Good page design, good type. All of that, to me, right. outweighs color management. And the people I've seen get obsessed over color management. None of them make good books. They make color specific books. And the only people who care are other people who are obsessed with color management. <laughs> So my, my advice to most people is very simple. Mm-hmm. Calibrate your monitor. And you would be surprised how many professional photographers do not calibrate their monitor. Right. Right. So you, there's no excuse. It's not complicated. It's not expensive. You calibrate your monitor. The, number, the second thing to keep in mind is your monitor density. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know about you, but I have my monitor density, the brightness up all the yep. time. Yeah, me too. Maxed. And I mm-hmm. and I don't want to sit in a pre-press house. So, and I don't want to sit in a room that's designed for pre-press. I have my every window open. I have mm-hmm. my brightness turned up. And I know if I print what I see on my Apple monitor, it's going to print dark. Right. You know? I'm just right. pushing so much light through these images. So you have to keep those two things in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for example, Blurb offers an ICC profile that you can download um, for your images. And mm-hmm. I purposely do not use it. And the reason I don't use it is because I know how many of our customers don't use it. And for a lot of people, it's so complicated and confusing, it stops them from making a book in the first place. Mm-hmm. So what I tell people, they see my books and they go, Oh, your books look good because you get special treatment, which is <laughs> simply not true. Mm-hmm. And I say, look, I don't, not only do I not get special treatment, I buy my own books and I basically don't use the profile because I want you to know that if you calibrate your monitor and you keep density in mind, you are going to be just fine. And obviously, if you're going to do an offset print run, if you're going to print hundreds and hundreds of books, you're going to get a proof that you can then work from the proof. I understand that having good color on books like that is important. And I'm not, I'm not discrediting the fact that you want good color by any means. Right, right. I'm just saying it should not be your primary. Mm focus when it comes to making a book, because let's face it, getting attention for your book is not easy. Mm -hmm. Getting someone to put their phone down, turn off Netflix (laughs) and focus on your work Mm -hmm. in in a world that is deluged with content all All day, every day. It is not easy. It's hard. Mm -hmm. you got to be good. You got to be crafty. I would much prefer crafty to perfect.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Perfect tends to be boring. Crafty. Yeah. I, have, I have a friend. So there's there's a guy in the book world. He's actually more than someone in the book world. He used to be in the book world, and now he works for Christie's. But he's mm-hmm. a guy named uh, Darius himes and Darius is one of the coolest people in the book world you're ever going to meet. Super down to earth, very knowledgeable, stylish guy. Um, just a blast to be around. And he mm-hmm. and I have done a couple little things together in the past in terms of like talks and lectures and stuff. And I remember Darius showing a book that he bought that came wrapped in this very cool wrapping. It was kind of like gift wrapped almost. Hmm. And the gift wrap was so cool. He said, I'm never going to open the book because I don't want to ruin the wrapping. (laughs) And I was like, that's really smart. That's a very cool thing that someone's going to come into your house and they're going to go, hey, this book's not unwrapped. And you're going to go, yeah, don't touch it. Don't unwrap it because... (laughs) I don't need to see it because the wrapping is so great. I would take that any day of the week over some landscape book that has perfect color mm-hmm. <laughs> because it just doesn't matter. I think people are looking for, for more. I think in some right. ways we're our refinement as human beings has reached a different level in some right. ways, at least other ways we're going backwards at warp speed. But, um, right. yeah, I would take, I would take crafty.
0: Right. Yeah. So, yeah, and we could go down the rabbit hole of, you know, sensor resolution and all that stuff, but let's prob- let's not do that <laughs> because okay. I know people, people obsess about, you know, image quality and all that. And I think that's along the same lines of well, what you just mentioned, right, where, you know, we have yeah. fantastic photographers who, you know, from the 50s who shot everything on 35 millimeters um, on film. Um, anyway,
1: I'm, I'm fortunate that way. And and it's probably fortunate for this interview that I just don't know anything about that stuff because, <laughs> you know, I, I know that what my, you know, my cam- I think my Fuji is a 24 megapixel digital camera. Um, it's, it's not full frame. Um, it just doesn't matter. Right. You know, I, I mean, look, you could give me the Sony with the, f- whatever the, f- or the new Fuji with the hundred megapixel, <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean anything. I have right. to, I have to find the right light, the right timing, the right composition, the right subject mm-hmm. matter, all of that stuff matters. Right. And then the camera just should be something that doesn't get in the way. And, and, right. you know, when you're, I teach workshops from time to time and mm-hmm. sometimes you'll see the students who's like the student who's standing in the middle of the street and they're staring at the back of the camera and you're like, Hey, wait a minute, you know, what you're here to do is in front of you. It's not in your hand. (laughs) And so none of that stuff matters at all. All In fact, I had a, a kid reach out to me on YouTube last week, and he's a kid from, I don't know where he lives, it's somewhere overseas. And he's like, look, these are my options. I have this horrible Nokia, this old Nokia phone, which has a camera technically. And then I've got some other thing and both choices were bad. And he's like, what do I do? And I was like, oh, you've got that horrible Nokia phone. That's exactly what you should use. Embrace, <laughs> I guess, embrace the suckiness of that phone. Mm-hmm. Because you and then print large, print as large as you can with the worst camera that you have. And I go, that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And you don't have anything else. So what are you going to do? You're either not going to shoot, or you're going to use this horrible camera. It's like, use the worst one you have and embrace the fact that it's not good. And then maybe find the beauty in the fact that you don't have something that's good, and you right. can make up for that maybe by a little bit, a little bit better design, a little bit better typography use, etc. It's a, it's a little game that you can play, but yeah, the the same color management people tend to get obsessed over
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> camera technology, and right. uh, man, it's a, that's a great great conversation right before you go to sleep because it's yeah. pretty, <laughs> pretty boring,
2: right,
0: <laughs> Daniel? You're you're an in- avid reader and you often recommend books on your blog shifter.media are there any books you would recommend to maybe our audience and perhaps focusing on the creative side of you know the the printing or you know some of the topics we talked about or you you know if nothing comes to mind maybe you know what are you reading right now or recommending right now
1: oh man um i mean so, I know and,
0: you read a lot. so. <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I've the, I've read three books this year so far. I just finished um, a book called Refuge by uh, Terry Tempest Williams, who's one of my favorite authors of all time. This has nothing to do with photography, by the okay. way. Um, she writes about the natural world. She's based out of Utah. Everything I've ever read of Terry Tempest Williams is fantastic. And this is a book that is absolutely heartbreaking. Because... It's on one hand about the natural world, about the Great Salt Lake. And during the 80s, it flooded and the city had to take this unbelievable measures to keep the city from being flooded. And and so that's one of the stories in the book. And the parallel story is her mother dying of cancer. And And the way that she writes and the blending of those stories, going to the refuge and looking at birds and then going to the hospital and seeing her mother, who was very young. I think she died in her early 50s. Um, is just an astounding book. I mean, there were periods where I just had to close the book and just think about what she was saying. So Mm. I I, I just read a Philip Caputo book. Um, uh, This is a good angle for photographers. Philip Caputo is known for a book called A Rumor of War, which he was a foot soldier in Vietnam. When he came back, he wrote a book called A Rumor of War, and it's one of the classic books about the war in Vietnam. Mm. He also wrote a book called Del Corso's Gallery, which is about a photojournalist. Mm. And and that's a good book. Um, you have the year of living dangerously by Christopher Koch. That's another good book. Um, highways to war is a book, another book about a photographer by Christopher Koch. Um, you have river of time by John Swain, which was about, um, the Khmer Rouge takeover of Cambodia. He was a writer. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you saw a movie called the killing fields, sorry, there's a helicopter. Oh yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, there was a movie called the killing fields, Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 um, and, and John Swain is one of the characters in that. Uh, there's been all kinds of books written. David Hearn wrote a book about photography that's pretty fantastic. I don't remember the title off the top of my head, but my my sort of top ten style style of books are uh, The Razor's Edge by Somerset Maugham, Rum Diary by Hunter Thompson. I think is a it was one. Mm-hmm. I think it was the first book he had published. A great book. Um, you have, uh, seven pillars of, of wisdom about T.E. Lawrence. That's, you know, Lawrence of Arabia. That's a
2: mm-hmm.
1: crazy, crazy good book. Um, I love a book called the cheese monkeys by chip kid. Who's a, who's a mm-hmm. book designer. Chip Kidd oh. does all kinds of book design. Um, he's fantastic. He also has a great sense of humor
2: mm-hmm. and he
1: wrote a book called the cheese monkeys about a, it's a, it's a novel about a kid in art school. And it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been around <laughs> art school, you will get a, a kick out of this book. <laughs> Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, I reading is a free education. It's Mm -hmm. endless. There, every, every single book I pick up there's, it leads to more and more and more. Mm -hmm. Um, I just watched a series on Amazon prime called Zero 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 or Zero Zero Zero, which is about both the drug war and and shipping. Mm -hmm. And um, I found out that it's based on a book. And so Mm -hmm. my next, next hunt is to find that book because I thought that series on Amazon prime was incredibly well done. Hmm. It was so well-written and beautifully filmed. It's violent, definitely, hmm. but just a really wonderful story. And um, one of the questions I get all the time that's kind of peculiar to me, it's always, it's always kind of caught me off guard, <laughs> is that people ask me what to photograph. Hmm. And I get it a lot. <laughs> and people say, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to photograph. And every time someone sa- asks me that, I say the same thing. Read. It's <laughs> read. It mm-hmm. is impossible to read just the books I read this year alone, where the water goes, which is about the Colorado river, which is fascinating and terrifying mm-hmm. at the same time. Then I read a book called summarized by sin, which is a Phil Caputo book. That's based on a real story mm-hmm. <clears throat> about the drug war. Mm-hmm. And then this, this Terry Tempest Williams book. And just from those three books alone, There's a hundred photo stories I could come Hmm. up with from those Mm -hmm. projects. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think I live in the Southwest Mm -hmm. and the Colorado river is the lifeblood of this entire region from SoCal from Wyoming, basically to Southern California. There are a thousand stories right there.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. That's it. You got people, you got place, you got land, you got history, Mm -hmm. you got politics, you got religion, all of it right there Mm. all in the shape of the river Mm -hmm. it's just endless so reading is one of the foundational pieces of my life i know that may Mm -hmm. sound like melodramatic but it's true Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: well i think that's a that's a good note to end this uh interview i also want to make sure you're not getting too cold in your van
1: (laughs) oh no i got i got my layers on i'm okay pretty pretty toasty in here i'm good all
0: right good good well Daniel, thank you so much. That was that was really a lot of fun. Um, I learned a lot, and it was so great to talk to you.
1: Yeah, for sure. You asked very good questions. Oh, I thank think, you. I think it was a it was a good conversation. I think talks like this are, are important. They're fun. I like the fact that it's an over an hour long. I think <laughs> um, you know we need to do more of this. And yeah. Uh, yeah. and and my my opinions and my story are just one in a in a sea of options and and mm-hmm. ideas and so uh you know hopefully hopefully something i shared is of value
0: oh yeah absolutely well thanks again
1: of course you're very welcome <laughs> thanks for having me
0: all right that concludes my episode and conversation with daniel milnor i hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as i did if you like this content please share it with others who might enjoy it as well I will also leave some of the book recommendations Daniel mentioned at the end at daniel.sickphotography.com episode 025. Again, that's episode 025. Thanks so much for listening and talk to you next time. <music>